Good morning. Welcome back to the second week in our series, Above the Noise. If you weren't here last week, we missed you. Catch it online because a lot of the, the details and things that we covered last week, we won't have time to cover again this week, so you can catch up there. Uh, but it's the second week, and the whole reason we're doing this series is because in the face of what is most urgent, day in, day out, week in, week out, in the face of what is most urgent, we tend to lose sight of what is most important, and wherever you are on the spiritual spectrum, we have those moments, those moments where we could just kind of rise, we wish we could just rise up out of our circumstances, that we could just rise above just, just the immediate pressure and needs and requests from us and get above it and get a glimpse of something just a little bit bigger, something a little bit transcendent, that if there is a God out there, we wish we could get some kind of sense of him. And if you're a follower of Christ or you believe in God, there are those moments where you wish you wouldn't just know things things about God, but you could get a sense of his presence because you know that he's there and you just want to feel him and sense him there. And we said, or we suggested, that that's because, possibly, possibly because we were made for this. That there's God and there's us and there's nothing in between because we were created for this face-to-face -face relationship with God where we could see God and we could talk to God and he would actually talk back to us. We were made for that. And we're made to live in response to who God is, which is what the Bible says is worship, that worship is our response to who God is, that we were created to live in this face-to-face -face relationship with God. But what happens is, instead of this, what we tend to find is this, that instead of this face-to-face -face relationship with God, we tend to find ourselves in uh, confronted day after day, week after week by uh, needs, requirements, deadlines, requests, um, just everything kind of clamoring for our focus and our attention. And what happens is, as a result, instead of living our lives in response to who God is, we find ourselves living our lives in response to the tyranny of the urgent. And, 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 we, and we find that we just desire in the midst of all the pressures and deadlines and requirements. We wish we could just get those glimpses of who God is. And so last week we talked about this powerful, powerful, powerful way that God invites us to connect with him, to get a glimpse of who he is, to experience who he is on this much, much deeper level. And it's through singing together or corporate worship or collective worship or worship or praise or whatever you want to call it. It's essentially singing together. And last week we talked about how singing together isn't just something that makes us feel awkward, but it does a lot of things for us as well. That singing together actually has um, benefits for your memory that, that when we sing together, the information that we sing, the emotions that we have when we sing, and the experiences that we have while we're singing, all of those get encoded and put in a place neurologically that makes it almost unforgettable. And not only that, but singing releases endorphins, giving singing together, not just listening to music, but singing together health benefits so that singing together, they found, actually heals people physically and um, heals people emotionally. And we talked about the impact emotionally on us of singing together, how it releases an, um, um, dopamine into our brains, this, the same chemical that's released when people do drugs or eat chocolate or have sex or drink alcohol. The same thing is released when we sing together, as well as what Kim said, oxytocin, which is released with it, which prevents it from becoming addictive. And also is the thing that helps us to feel this sense of connectedness and trust among each other. And all of that through singing. 
And so we concluded that it's no wonder why, no wonder why God has invited us over thousands and thousands and thousands of years to come and sing together. And as we look through the pages of scripture, we see God's people coming and singing together. And throughout the world today, we see people continuing to come and sing together. And I heard a pastor talking about a mission trip that he went on not too long ago in South America and he came back and he said while he was there they were taking a break from the work site and they were going to get lunch and they were walking past a church in this downtown area and he said in the courtyard of this church he saw people just crying out to God singing to God with all of their hearts eyes closed tears flooding down their cheeks and he said to the interpreter that was with me he said is this a memorial service that they're having here and the guy said no they just do this every day at lunch and, and then the pastor said it was as if, it was as if they knew something that we didn't. Like they had something that we've lost because in our Western culture over the last couple generations, we've lost the value of, of singing together. And, and, and we asked, you know, what if, what if this is something that, that God designed us for, that, that, he tend to, that he intended to be just a normal part of our lives? And what if with it we've lost this ability to, to get these experiential glimpses and sense of God's presence and closeness to us? And in the midst of all the noise, what if God is inviting us to reclaim and redeem the power not just of music, but of singing together. Now here's where we're going to go this morning. What we're going to talk about this morning is the fact that in the midst of all the noise and all the demands and all the requests and all the requirements, I think the thing that tends to drive us the most, the, the thing that causes the most pressure, the most anxiety, the thing that causes what I think is the most stress is this, fear. I think that is the number one thing driving us in the midst of all of our daily and weekly requirements. And the fear, I think, the fear that you have, that I have, that I think all of us share. I think the fear that we have, we have in common. And I think we don't like to admit it. We don't like to admit it to others. We don't like to admit it to ourselves. But I think if this morning we're willing to be really, really brutally honest with ourselves. As much as we claim this isn't true, and as much as we tell ourselves this isn't true, I think this fear is a fear that we're not acceptable. And the reason I think that is because if you had the option every single day, if you had the option to go to work and work with people who loved you and valued you and thought you were brilliant and appreciated your contributions, or the ability to choose whether you could go to work with people who despised you, didn't like being around you, hated your contributions, and judged you harshly. If you could choose those between those, I think we'd all choose to people work with people who liked us. And I think if we could choose our families, like if we had any kind of control over that, we could choose our families, and we could choose to be in a family where we were around people all the time who loved us, who valued us, who elevated us, who encouraged us, or be around people who judged us and criticized us and came down hard and heavy on us all the time. If we had the choice between those, of course, we'd choose to be in a family of people who loved us and valued us. And if you, on your deathbed, had the choice to choose if people are going to come and tell you how much they appreciated your contributions to their life, how much they valued you, how much they appreciated you, how much they enjoyed being around you, or 
people to come and tell you how much they despised you and are so glad you're in this condition right now and can't wait till you're gone. I think we'd all, we'd know who we'd choose, you know? And if you woke up every single morning and could hit one button that caused everyone you encountered for the day to like you and accept you or the button that made everybody hate you and despise you, we know which one we'd push every single day. And the reason is, it's not because we're needy, it's not because we're weak, it's not because there's something wrong with us. The reason is, deep down inside every single one of us, deep down at our core, there's a fear that asks the question, am I okay? Am I okay? Am I likable? Would people like me for me? Am I worthy? Am I desirable? Am I lovable? And the way that we confront this, the way that we seek to answer that question, am I okay? Where we look to find that answer is we tend to look to somebody or somebody's to tell us whether or not we're okay. And, and for some of us, some of us, it's, it's through comparison. We're, we're constantly comparing ourselves to others to know whether or not we're okay. We're constantly looking to see, is my job as good as so-and-so's job? Am I successful as? Do I have as nice of a house as? Do I have as nice of a car as? Are my kids as good as? And we're constantly comparing, 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 comparing. And the problem with that, we all know the problem with that. The problem with that is we can always find someone who has more or better, is more successful, and we're never, never okay as long as we're playing the comparison game. Or some of us, some of us are constantly looking into our past, to look into our past and finding somebody or somebody's who said or showed us that we were okay. And the problem with that is the people that we tend to find when we look to our past, the people that we tend to find are the people who showed us, who confirmed we're not okay. And for some of us, for some of us, for years and years and years and years, we've carried around with us the judgments of some of the people who mattered most to us in our lives who confirmed that we're not okay. And maybe it was classmates from years and years and years ago or a parent. And we've been carrying that with us ever since. And when we ask ourselves, are we okay? Our mind goes straight back to that person who confirms that we're not. And I think some of us, some of us this morning, in our day-to-day -day lives, we're looking for a specific somebody to confirm that we're okay. There is somebody that we're just aching for their attention. We're aching for their affirmation. And maybe, maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a spouse. And for years and years and years, you've just needed that person to notice, to notice you and show some kind of affection for you and give you the sense that you are okay. And as messed up and as hurtful as it is, it's possible that that isn't coming. And some of us wake up every single morning and look in the mirror and know we're not okay. We're not worthy, we're not lovable. And some of us are running and running after it, exhausted trying to prove that we're okay, terrified, terrified that everybody's gonna find out that we're the fraud that we're afraid we are. And I think, I think in the midst of the noise, not only do we lose sight of who God is, I think we lose sight of who we are. And we find ourselves defining who we are 
by who others think we are. And so not only do we not live in response to who God is, not only do we live in response to the tyranny of the urgent, I think we find ourselves living in response to the tyranny of public opinion. And so one of the things, one of the things that the music we sing is meant to do, one of the things that the songs we sing is meant to do, not just to help us to get an understanding and experience deeply who God is, but the songs that we sing are meant to allow us and remind us and allow us to experience deeply who we are. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And we're going to look at the song that we ended our worship set with called No Longer Slaves. And looking at that, it's going to take us to a book in the Bible called Galatians. Galatians was actually an ancient letter written by the Apostle Paul, who was a follower of Jesus. Um, we'll have the, the verses up here on the screens for you guys. And in this letter that the Apostle Paul, this ancient letter that this follower of Jesus named Paul writes, he writes it to the city of Galatia, which is a city in the Roman Empire, to a group of followers of Jesus there. And Paul, in this letter, is unpacking some of his insights into the person of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. And in that, he's sharing with him his insight about where this fear comes from, this fear that we're not okay and where we're supposed to look to find that answer. So here's what he says. He says in Galatians 4, 4, he says, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those born under Law. Now, that phrase, born under the law, or born under the law, isn't something that we use a lot. You know, when you find out that your friend had their baby, you don't say, like, congratulations on your baby, born under law. We just don't, it just doesn't come up much in conversation. So let's unpack that. Born under law, what are we talking about? Born under, law, under the law regards this. Every single one of us, regardless of where you are spiritually, whether you believe in God, you don't believe in God, you're a follower of Jesus, you're not a follower of Jesus, regardless of where you are, every single one of us was born, we were born with the sense that there are things that we ought to do and things that we ought not to do. You know, we, we just know it, we're born knowing it. Nobody ever had to sit us down and say, you ought not murder, right? We just, we just know that. Even though people have told us that, they didn't have to tell us that because we just knew it. Nobody ever had to tell you that it was not okay for people to steal from you. You know, we just knew that. And nobody ever had to tell you it's not okay for people to lie to you. Like, we just know that. They're just things that we know that we ought to do and things that we know we ought not to do. And we're born knowing it. And whether you've ever thought about where that comes from, or if you've just always called it conscience and you never really thought about the source of it, regardless of, of what you've thought about it in the past, where that comes from is that's God's law written on our heart. God created us with his law written on our heart, which just gives us this, this, this natural sense of some things are okay and some things are not okay. So Paul says, when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, to redeem those born under the law. Here's the big deal. We're born knowing that there are things that we ought to do, things we ought not to do, right? Yet, we find that we sometimes do the things that we ought not to do, and sometimes we don't do the things we ought to do. We, we know this, you know? We know that we ought always tell the truth and be completely honest, and yet we find we don't always tell the truth and be completely honest. 
right? We know that we ought always be patient with our kids, but we find we are not always patient with our kids. You know, and so over and over again, we find there are these things that we should do and shouldn't do, and yet we find ourselves doing them and not doing them. And what that causes is this disconnect. It causes this gap between who at our core we know we should be and who we actually are. And that gap, that gap causes this deep-seated insecurity in the very fiber of our beings at our very core, at the core of our soul. There's this gap between who we know we're supposed to be and who we actually are. And it causes this sense, this deep fear that we're not okay because we know at our core we're not okay. And so to handle that, what we do is we go out and we try to prove that we're okay. And we try to prove it through success. We try to prove it through how we compare to other people. We try to prove it through what we own and our lifestyle and, and comparing ourselves constantly, but the problem with all of that is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how successful you become. It doesn't matter what kind of job you ever have. It doesn't matter what kind of house you ever own. None of it ever matters because none of it, none of it can ever satisfy that gap. None of it even touches that gap. That gap is a core disconnect that no level of success or comparison can ever resolve. And so Paul says the problem is that that gap between who we are and who we know we're supposed to be, that gap that's caused by not living by God's law written on our heart, that gap causes a disconnect between us and our creator because that gap produces, produces shame, it produces guilt, and shame and guilt produce fear, and we pull away from our creator. And so Paul says that Jesus came Jesus came to redeem those born under the law, to redeem them, to win them back, to rejoin them, to reconnect them, to win them back, but to win them back to what? To redeem those under the law that we might, that we might receive adoption to sonship. You see, Jesus came, Jesus came not just to get us to heaven. Jesus didn't just come to, to pay for our sins. Jesus didn't come just to help us to be Good people, even though he did all of those things and more. But Jesus, the creator, came into this world, humbled himself as an infant, lived a perfect life, trusted himself into the hands of his own creation who nailed him to a cross where he died for us to prove that he, above all, is for us and to invite us he made himself as small and humble and gentle as possible to invite us to trust him, to trust him so that we, you and me, could become children of our heavenly father. And then Paul writes this. He says, because you are sons and you are daughters, because you are sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. And that word Abba there, it's, it's an Aramaic word. And when this was originally translated from the original language into Greek, then eventually into English, that word was left in the Aramaic, Abba, because there was no word that translated it in the Greek language. It was always just left Abba. And it was this term that was never before this, never before this, ever thought it was unthinkable to apply this term 
to God. And what this term means, what it closely is resembled by in the English language today, is the word dad. Because our heavenly father wants to invite us to know him as dad. Now let me ask you a question. What does a child have to do for their dad to love them? What does a child have to do for their dad to love them? When I tuck my kids in at night, I regularly try to remind them, over and over again, I regularly try to remind them that I love them and there is nothing, nothing that they have to do to earn my love. And because a lot of things happen in our household during the day, I also feel like I need to remind them. (laughs) There is nothing you could ever do to make me stop loving you. Nothing, nothing, nothing you do will ever make me stop loving you. And I ask them, do you know why? Do you know why I will never stop loving you? And they say, why, Daddy? I say, because you're mine. You're mine. You're my son. You're my daughter. And because you're mine, I will never, never stop loving you. What does a child have to do to be loved by their dad? Nothing. What do you have to do to be loved by your heavenly father? Nothing. What do you have to do to be loved by your heavenly father? Nothing. Nothing. Have you allowed yourself to consider that your heavenly father sees everything there is to know about you, sees your past, your mistakes, the baggage that you continue to carry today. He sees your regrets. He sees the habits. He sees the things that you don't think anybody knows about. He sees, he sees your superficial spirituality. He sees all the things that you pretend to be. And he loves you, loves you, loves you. And there's nothing that you could ever, ever do to make him stop loving you. And he loves you just as you are. And like we always say, he loves you just as you are, but too much to leave you that way because he's inviting you in to something so much, so much better. And that maybe, maybe he's proud of you and he's proud of every small step and turn you take towards him. He's proud of you every time you turn to him in prayer. At the end of the day and you're exhausted and you fall asleep, he's so proud of you and treasures those moments that you have together. And maybe some of us, what we need most in this season of our lives right now is to allow ourselves to hear the whisper of God saying there is nothing, nothing, nothing you could ever do to make me stop loving you. And to hear his voice saying, no, you you hear all those people and you're looking to all the people tell you whether or not you're okay. The truth is you're fine. You're fine. Because you're mine. You're mine. You're mine.
And then Paul goes on, he says. He says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And in another letter, uh, writing to followers of Jesus in Rome, he's, he's talking about the same thing. He says, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And this is Paul kind of saying, come on, guys, let's be honest here. Let's get really real about this. We're not just a little bit insecure. Let's be honest. We're not just a little bit worried about other people's opinions. Come on, let's be honest. We are slaves, slaves to the fear of what other people think. We've become enslaved by it. We are forced and pressured and pushed and pulled because of our fear of what other people will think if we don't. Or if we do, and we extend ourselves and overextend ourselves and burn ourselves out because of our fear of what they'll think. And it causes us to spend our money in the most unwise ways because we're afraid of what they're going to think about us. And it causes us to do all these things that we wouldn't otherwise do and worry about what's going to happen if we do or if we don't or if we're not enough. We've become slaves to it. And our Heavenly Father is saying, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. I have freed you from that. You are no longer a slave to that kind of fear. I have opened up the door and I am calling you out son, and I am calling you out, daughter. You are no longer a slave to that kind of fear. And Paul writes this. He said, so if God is for us, if your heavenly father is for you, if the creator of the universe is for you, if the one who spoke and galaxies came into existence is for you, the creator who came to his own creation and died for you, if your heavenly father is for you, who, who, who in your life, who in this world, who can stand against you? Your heavenly father saying, look, my child, look, if I'm for you, who are you going to allow to be against you? Let me ask you a question. Whose opinion of a child is more important than their dad's? When I'm the only one at home with my kids, here's what I hear all day long. Daddy, 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 watch me. Watch this, daddy. Daddy, watch this. Dad, watch me do this. Daddy, watch me do this. Daddy, did you see? Did you see? Daddy, daddy, watch. Did you see? All day long. You know who they don't ask to watch them? Anybody else. And sometimes we have people over at our house and there are a bunch of people milling around and I'm doing something and the kids are like, daddy, daddy, daddy. And I don't see it, but one of my friends tries to cover for me and they're like, that was really good, buddy, good job. This is how my kids look at it and they're like, who asked you? You're not my dad. Whose opinion of a child matters more than their dad's? Nobody's. Whose opinion of you should matter more than your heavenly father's? Nobody's. Whose opinion of you should matter more than your heavenly father's? Nobody's. Nobody's. Your heavenly father looks at you and says, why 
Why, why would you allow who you are to be defined by who others think you are? Why? Why would you define yourself by who others think you are when who you are should be defined by whose you are? Who you are should be defined by whose you are. And when you walk out of here and you walk back into your week and you walk back into the the noise and you are tempted to define yourself by who others think you are, to allow yourself to hear the whisper of God saying, no, no, no. Who you are is defined by whose you are. A follower of Jesus named Mark, who was young when Jesus was doing his ministry, but when he grew up, became a student of Peter and learned about the life and ministry of Jesus and and bigger terms from Peter. He wrote an account of Jesus' life. We find it in the Bible, book of Mark. And in it, he talks about this event during Jesus' ministry. It's just incredible. You know, Jesus is out and he's ministering to the crowds and he's doing miracles and he's healing people and everybody's coming to see him and hear him and watch him. And in the midst of all of it, we see these kids running up to Jesus. It's like their moms are like sending up to Jesus, like, go to Jesus. Maybe if he touches you, you'll be good. (laughs) And so these kids are coming up to Jesus. And in that culture, kids were like second-class citizens. They didn't matter very much. And so the disciples saw the kids coming up to Jesus and they were like, This is Jesus, okay? (laughs) Jesus doesn't have time for you, (laughs) children. And Jesus says, whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you doing? And he says this. He says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And he took the children in his arms. And that Greek phrase there, took his children in his arms, that phrase is only ever used in all of Greek literature, only ever used for a father embracing his sons and his daughters. Here are these children, no fear or insecurity, coming to be embraced by the great I am. One of my favorite parts of my day is when I get home and get out of the truck and hear the screen door slam shut and the footsteps across the driveway and the voices saying, Daddy, 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 Daddy. And sometimes it's in here after second service because sometimes I don't see my kids on Sunday until after second service and I see them out in the lobby and they see me for the first time of the day and they run and they say, daddy, 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 daddy. And they don't care who I'm talking to. They don't care who's around. They don't care what I'm in the middle of doing. It's daddy, 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 daddy. Because they're just glad to see their dad. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. The kingdom of God belongs to those who are confident sons, confident daughters, who are a broken mess, but just love, love, love to be with their dad. And maybe, 
maybe that's one of the pictures we need to have of what worship is. Confident sons and daughters who just want to be with their dad. And maybe worship isn't just our response to who God is, but our response to who God is and whose we are. And as we go back out into our week, into the, all the noise, and are tempted to, to define who we are by who's, who others think we are, we need to hear the whisper of God saying, stop. What are you doing? Because who you are is defined by whose you are. And you are fine because you're mine. Now, I'm going to have Taylor and Micah come out to close us out. But before they do, I'm so excited for you guys to hear Micah's story. Because like we said last week, our vocalists do an amazing job of demonstrating what worship looks like. You know, just singing our hearts out to God. But what we don't always get to see, we don't get to see the way that our vocalists model what it looks like to allow worship and singing together to cultivate our hearts and, and to remind us not just of who God is, but whose we are. And so in interacting with, with Micah this week and hearing her story about how she's connected with this song, I mean, I was just blown away. And so I'm excited for you guys to hear it because I think her story is our story. So this is Micah Hemingway. I'm really scared right now. I grew up in a very dysfunctional home. There was love there, but there was also alcoholism and untreated bipolar depression. There was always screaming in my house, always fighting, always ugly words always anger, but to the outside world, we presented the picture of a perfect family. My father was very successful. My mother was always perfectly put together and smiling, and I was expected to play my part in that picture by never telling anyone what happened in our home and by overachieving academically. And that was a role I learned to play very, very well. Nobody knew I was hurting. Not my teachers, not my pastors, not my friends. To them, it seemed like I had everything together. But on the inside, I was broken and I felt worthless. The harder things got at home, <clears throat> the harder I pushed myself academically. I started college before I graduated high school, and when that wasn't enough to silence that voice that told me I wasn't good enough, I got presidential overrides to take more hours than you were allowed to take in a semester. And I pushed myself hard in those classes to excel. I didn't sleep. Sometimes I didn't eat. I didn't go out with friends because I needed to succeed to feel good about who I was. During my second year of college, my body crashed and I ended up hospitalized with 
an autoimmune disorder the doctors could not get under control. My life went from being very big and very busy to being very small and very quiet in a span of days. I knew I was sick. And I knew the possibility existed that I would not come through that illness. And I remember vividly, it wasn't the thought of dying that scared me. What scared me is that I thought if I died that God wouldn't want me. I had been raised in the church, then I would read all the verses that talk about how God sees through to our hearts, and they absolutely terrified me because I thought my heart was worthless, and I thought, how could this perfect God who sees everything possibly want me when I don't even want me? My recovery took a long time, most of that in bed, and I turned to my Bible. And God started showing himself to me. I started seeing his mercy. In verses like Romans 5, 8, God shows his love to us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In 1 John 3, 1, See what kind of love the Father has that we should be called the children of God. In Isaiah 43.1, God says, Do not be afraid, for I have ransomed you, and I have called you by name, and you are mine. And reading those words, I realized he was talking to me too. And that God knew my name. And that I wasn't alone. And I felt that knot that had always been lodged right here in my chest loosen. Because I had an identity that could not be taken from me. I didn't have to earn it. That acceptance that I had chased my whole life, that I had made myself sick to get was right there, and it had always been right there for me. I was a child of God. I'm a work in progress. And that voice that says I'm not good enough, it's still there. It tells me I'm not a good enough wife that I'm not a good enough mother, that I'm not a good enough friend. Every single time I get on this stage, that voice tells me I'm not good enough to serve. But the difference between the person who was terrified by that voice and ruled by it, and who I am today, is that I know exactly who I am now. I am the beloved child of the perfect risen King. And I may not be good enough, but he is.
when we started singing No Longer Slaves about two years ago. It was a long time before I could sing any of the words without weeping. The idea that he unravels us from everything we used to hide, that he calls us to him, that he gives us the authority to call ourselves his children, <laughs> it shatters me. I am a child of God. You are a child of God. He has ransomed you. He knows your name. And he calls you his own. As we sing this together this morning, let's, let's make that a declaration. I'm a child of God. You are a child of God. Will you sing? Stand and 
so much uh, for your love and your grace and for inviting us to be your children and we pray as we walk out into our days and our weeks that you would allow your whisper to rise above all the voices that we could hear you saying you are fine because you're mine and Lord we ask it all in Jesus name Amen